0: From claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. EWTN Radio presents The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. One of the benefits of the job of being the miracle hunter is that I get to travel all over the world to places big and small. Maybe we talk about uh, traveling to Rome to visit the location of the apparition to Alphonse Rattisbon, which we celebrate today on January 20th. That happened in 1842. Or we talk about going to Upper Peninsula, Michigan, where we filmed an episode of They Might Be Saints about venerable Bishop Barraga. Well, we'll be talking uh, to guests from both of those places or related to both of those places later in the program. We'll be talking to Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, uh, author of numerous Catholic books, including one on the Miraculous Medal. So we'll be talking about uh, that incredible uh, uh, Marian apparition to Alphonse Radesbon, where he converts to Catholicism after having uh, put on the Miraculous Medal. Uh, absolutely amazing. We'll be talking with... Lenora McKean, the executive director of the Bishop Baraga Association up in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. We'll talk about uh, Venerable Bishop Frederick Baraga, uh, that incredible uh, snowshoe priest who traveled all over uh, the uh, Upper Peninsula to spread the gospel. We'll be excited to talk to both of them in just a little bit. And for people who want to check out my show, They Might Be Saints, uh, there's an episode coming up on January 24th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time about Venerable Mother Maria Kaupas and the cause of sainthood of Venerable Mother Maria Kaupas, who's the founder of the Sisters of St. Casimir, uh, is the subject of this one, and her inspirational work in education and health care led many to seek her intercession before God on their behalf. And so check that one out, They Might Be Saints, Venerable Mother Maria Kalpas, on January 25th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on EWTN. You can also check out my other show, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. One of my favorite episodes is coming up on January 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Saturday. We go to Pontmain. You travel with me to Pontmain in France, where the Virgin Mary, under the title of Our Lady of Hope, appeared to farm children into an army precipitating the end of the Franco-Prussian War. So check that one out, Explore with the Miracle Hunter, Pont Maine, on Saturday, January 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Later in the show, we're going to be looking at the 365 Days with Mary project like we always do. We always look at the Marian devotion of the day as it lines up exactly to that day in the calendar year. And that's January 20th is today. Our Lady of the Miracle, Rome in Italy, is the commemoration for today. And the might-be saint of the day, Blessed Ursula Haider from Germany, who lived from 14 to 1498. And the question of the week is, why do so many Marian icons of Eastern Europe all have the same silvery dress? And the uh, might be uh, the miracle of the day, which is a new segment here in 2024. We'll be talking about the miracle that lines up to today's date. Claude Newman in uh, uh, July, uh, or January 20th, 1944. He was a prisoner on death row. Uh, we'll tell you about his amazing story in just a little bit. Let's take a look at the miracle news. We do this every week where we look at the miracles happening around the world and those things that relate to miracles. And uh, we've talked often on the show about weeping icons. These are uh, these icons that happen, you know, throughout the world, perhaps even in the United States. But we have a lot of cases in Russia and in Greece As it turns out and uh, there is an icon a russian icon that's in north carolina fletcher north carolina to be exact at this church of saint nicholas that is now weeping uh weeping murder and so uh last month uh during a vigil by the parish for the parish feast day officiated by uh this bishop uh george of mayfield of the russian orthodox church Uh, the main icon of Christ in the nave began streaming myrrh at uh, the St. Nicholas uh, Church in Fletcher, North Carolina. And even after some myrrh was collected from the stream on the following Monday, a small pool formed shortly after, and the icon was then moved to the holy table in the altar. And then on Sunday, December 28th, during the liturgy, honoring Uh, the uh, Holy Forefathers, as they'd be called there in that Russian Orthodox Church, myrrh began to stream again during the Beatitudes. And the miracle was witnessed uh, by uh, this priest, Father Stephen Webb, and the subdeacon John Cummings, and also another subdeacon, Daniel Franzen, and the servers, uh, there was uh, Dr. Andy Rudens and his son Alexander. So we have a handful of witnesses And the myrrh-streaming icon of Christ is already drawing faithful who come and venerate this mounted print, which is a copy of the Russian Christ the Savior original, uh, which is written in the Moscow school style of the 16th century. And that was a note provided by Father Stephen Webb, the rector of uh, St. Nicholas Church. So uh, this is a phenomenon that's happened all around the world. We see uh, Greek and Russian icons streaming myrrh. We see other ones uh, emanating uh, water, uh, others human tears. Uh, So this is uh, an interesting phenomenon that happens all around the world. And here we have a Russian icon uh, weeping in uh, North Carolina. So uh, keep up to date on the Miracle Hunter Facebook page for more developments related to the icon in St. Nicholas in Fletcher, North Carolina. Let's take a look at Catholic Pub Trivia. We do this every week where we ask a trivia question and give it a prize to an emailer that gets the right answer. Winners who write in the fastest uh, with the right answer receive the prize, the Miracle Hunter image of the Faces of Mary. And last week we were talking about the infant of Prague and uh, the question, which was a hard one, uh, what is the name of the spherical object held by the statue's left hand? And if you're familiar with that image of the infant of Prague, we see uh, Christ as a child wearing a crown and royal, uh, royal garb. But we also see in his hand, this uh this sphere that he's holding and so the official name of that sphere is called the globus Cruciger, latin for cross-bearing orb it's also known as a sphiera, uh the orb and cross it's an orb surmounted by a cross and it uh it has to do with a uh, a symbol of uh, having uh power over the whole world uh, That. Would be what uh, Christ has in that image and in reality. So uh, Globus Cruciger or Sphira or Orban Cross were all acceptable answers for this week's Catholic Pub Trivia. Let's take a look at the question uh, for this week. We're talking today about Venerable Bishop Berga later in the show with Lenora McKean, the executive director of the Bishop Berga Association. The question for today is What is the name of a fellow priest, an Italian from Wisconsin? also known for his missionary work, and a good friend of Bishop Baraga, who is also on the path to sainthood uh, himself. So again, uh, we're talking today about uh, Venerable Bishop Berga, but what is the name of a fellow priest of his? He's an Italian from Wisconsin, known also for his missionary work, good friend of Bishop Baraga, who is on the path to sainthood himself. If you think you know that answer and win the prize, the Miracle Hunter image of the Faces of Mary, Send me an email to questions at MiracleHunter.com or just go through my website, MiracleHunter.com and we'll see if you have the right answer and answers and winners will be posted on the show page on MiracleHunter.com. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with Lenora McKean, the Executive Director of the Bishop Berga Association. And we'll be talking about a potential new miracle that's being considered on the path to sainthood of Venerable Bishop Berga. Stay with us for that. Now, back to The Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to The Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People who tune into this show know I love talking about saints and uh, future saints specifically, and even more specifically, American future saints. And I've done this series called They Might Be Saints and written this book, also called They Might Be Saints, available from EWTNRC.com. And so uh, going through these various causes of of Americans on the path to sainthood, we're talking about servants of God, Venerables, blessed before they have all their miracles and are declared saints by Rome, uh, we look at these people on the path to sainthood. And I call them the might-be saints. And uh, one of my absolute favorite episodes that we filmed and one of my favorite uh, future American saints that I've become acquainted with quite well, he's become uh, a real uh, go-to intercessor for me, is Bishop Frederick Berga, who's a venerable in our Catholic Church. And we've done uh, a number of programs on him including uh, the Gro- Joe Gregorich story, which talked about the the story of how his cause, uh, inexplic- uh, almost miraculously in its own way, got off the ground. You can get that one at EWTNRC as well as the, uh, the episode of They Might Be Saints. Well, we're so excited to get an update on his cause uh, to find out where it's going. He's a venerable now. With a miracle, he'll be a blessed. Two miracles will make him a saint. And we're we've got news that a miracle is being considered in, uh, will be considered in Rome uh, to push that cause ahead and make him a blessed so we're so excited today to talk to Lenora McKean, the executive director of the Bishop Berga Association welcome back to the show Len. good morning well it's great to chat with you again and uh, of course, as I always like to say, Bishop Berga is one of my my favorites of the the Might be Saints and uh, it's exciting to see uh, Americans on the path to sainthood and For Bishop Baraga, especially as Chicago is covered in snow uh, and uh, freezing temperatures, I think of Bishop also often the snowshoe priest uh, because I don't want to leave the house at all, but uh, he left his home quite often, didn't
1: he?
2: He did, and and it's it's, um, funny that you should mention the weather, which, of course, um, dictates a lot of our life, right? And sometimes impedes what we want to do, but never interfered with his mission of bringing the faith to um, the people that he was ministering to. And as a matter of fact, I was just looking at his diary uh, that he kept in January 22nd of 1857. He wrote that he camped in a forest at minus 40 degrees. He was at risk of his face freezing. And I cannot imagine doing that. I can barely make it to my car from the, the building and, and into the parking lot, but nothing deterred him.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible and uh and I think it's where I mean whenever I think that uh I'm doing a lot or I'm busy or I've am you know working really hard at evangelization, spreading the gospel, I always reflect back on Bishop Barriga and his incredible work over the course of a lifetime, over uh the the amount of land that he covered on snowshoe and canoe and, and otherwise. Uh, to spread the gospel and, and and bring the sacraments, talk a little bit about his efforts uh, over the years and in, in the land that he covered in in spreading the gospel.
2: So he spent almost forty years um, in the Great Lakes region. You know, primarily the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He was from Slovenia and gave up everything that he had, which could have actually been a pretty fairly easy life, um, to come and spread the the gospel and to teach others the faith. And you know, the, the thing, um, the inspiration that I really grabbed from him is he joined people on their faith journey. Um, he wanted to help people have a stronger faith and have have a, a more spiritual life, but he just joined them where they were and taught them um, with the tools that they had. And he gave so much um, to the Native Americans, to the miners, to the settlers that were here in the Upper Peninsula, but there was no um, challenge too great for him. And it, it does give me pause as I grumble, you know, that it's too cold out or something's become too much of a challenge. But um, he never gave up. He, Whatever he needed to do, I mean, he, he, he snowshoed in, in the wintertime because that was the easiest way for him to cover the ground that he needed to cover. Um, or he'd take shortcuts on ice, oftentimes unsafely, but it would save him so many days of travel that he could just spend time ministering and teaching and you know, not only did he teach the gospel, but he taught basic skills. He, he taught reading and writing. And one of the great gifts that he gave to the Native Americans was they had their own language, but it wasn't a written language. And so it was difficult to pass that on to other generations to teach them and, and also to teach others that were coming to work with them. So he created the Ojibwe Dictionary and published it in 1853. It's still in use today, but it was a great um tool for them to be able to sustain their language, and he was a gifted linguist. Um, by the time he died, he was fluent in eight languages, and, you know, one of the things that he would teach people that would follow him, seminarium, uh priests that would come over, if you did not want to learn the native language, there was no need to come um, and to be over in this area, because you needed to respect the people that you were working with, and you needed to be able to teach them and talk to them in their native tongue. He's the only bishop that I know that wrote his first pastoral letter in two languages. He didn't write it in English and then have somebody else translate it. He wrote it in English, and then he wrote it in Ojibwe. He didn't want that misinterpretation or lost-in-translation fear or issue to arise. And so um, he did that with a lot of his work. Was he, he preached in multiple languages so that people could understand him. He wrote in mo- multiple languages languages for the same reason. So, you know, it's incredible that, you know, he he died in 1868, and we're still talking about the impact um, today that he has had on the generations
0: that followed. Absolutely. And I think that one thing that struck me is that uh, going up to film there uh, around Marquette, Michigan and Upper Peninsula, Michigan, uh, going to all those churches that he founded, and even the hotel room uh, or hotel that I stayed in on Perhaps Berga Street, there was a Berger room in the hotel. I mean, he's uh, he's had such a great influence. And I think that uh, perhaps other than Luka Doncic, the NBA star, and uh, Melania Trump, the former First Lady, maybe he's the most famous Slovenian uh, uh, to people, at least in, in Michigan. So I think that uh, it's really, uh, he's really had an, an a remarkable impact. And there's a lot of people pushing for his uh, canonization cause, yourself included, being the executive director of the Bishop Berga Association. Uh, He's a venerable now, which means that his life of heroic virtue has been established by Rome. And now there's a search on for miracles. And with a miracle, he will move forward uh, to the level of blessed on that sainthood path. Talk a little bit about the effort that's gone into to find miracles and where where you are today.
2: So um, we frequently will um, promote um, opportunities to to pray for his intercession. Of course, you know, we don't pray directly to the saints, but we ask them to be a conduit. You know, we, we believe that they're right there with Jesus and, you know, they, they have a captive audience there to take our prayers to, to Jesus. So um, we will have people that will contact us um, and ask maybe for a special blessing with one of Baraga's artifacts um, or maybe special prayers that they could pray for his intercession And then, you know, we ask that if they do think that they have experienced any kind of potential cure, that they contact us. And so we have been very blessed for many people to contact us and report what they believe to be um, potential intercessions on behalf of of Bishop Erga. And we we have a case that has been fully vetted and investigated um, and prepared for Rome. And so it is just waiting to be reviewed by the medical experts Um, And, you know, we we pray that it will be accepted and move on through the process and we'll take him to beatification.
0: Yeah, that would be absolutely incredible. He joined a very uh, select list of people from the United States. The most recent uh, was uh, Father Michael McGivney, uh, beatified there in uh, Connecticut. Um, yeah, and uh, that, was, that was on uh, Halloween Day in 2020 during the pandemic. I was there and I fully intend to go to the beatification of uh, uh, Bishop Berga, wherever that is, Rome or uh, in the UP. I'll be excited for that to happen. And so for people who want to find out more about Bishop Berga, his incredible life of service and evangelization, and uh, to find out about a, perhaps a prayer, uh, uh, if they uh, are seeking a miracle, what's the best place that people can go to find out about Bishop Berga?
2: So the best place to go is our website. It's Um You can read the history, um, a lot of his work. There's the prayer for canonization there. You can pray that multiple times a day and be counted. Um, and it is important that we can demonstrate to Rome when they review that case that we have support for his cause. So um, praying that prayer for canonization, becoming a member of the association, those are all great ways to show the support that we have for this saintly man's cause. And then, of course, our contact information is on there, and people can contact us. They can request prayer cards or novenas. Um, they can request the, the special blessing, and we try to accommodate as much as we can. We also have a wonderful gift shop, and they can shop that online. Um, so, again, they can read the writings of this, this incredibly gifted um, individual. And, and I have to segue for just a second. You know, I had a, a contact yesterday, um, from somebody wanting to do some teaching with their young adults, and they were asking for some barricade information. And his first prayer book that he wrote in 1830 that he wrote for the lay person, is just so full of wisdom that, you know, 1830, you'd think, oh my goodness, I'm not sure it's relevant, and it is so relevant to today. So his teachings are still so important and relevant to what's going on in our world
0: today. Absolutely, and uh, there are still people honoring him snowshoeing, aren't they? Uh, the snowshoe priest.
2: There are. And, you know, when the pandemic hit, we had to get creative. And so we learned about the virtual world, which as a small nonprofit was something a little foreign to us. But one of the things that we've continued, um, we started um, doing a virtual snowshoe walk. Um, The anniversary of his death is January 19th, um, which is just in a few days. And so that will kick off our virtual snowshoe walk. People can walk, they can jog, they can run, whatever they want to do. Um, and log their miles. And then between the 19th of January and the 31st of, of January, once they're finished logging those miles, contact us and we'll pick a winner for the adults and the youth and send them a, a, a gift bag for participating. But it's just kind of a fun way to um, challenge ourselves a little bit in this um, maybe bitter cold, wherever you, you might be, and to channel our Bishop Baraga, um a little bit and, and get out and maybe enjoy the the beauty of, um, of God that surrounded him as he was out ministering.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're so grateful to you, Len McKean, Executive Director for the Bishop Berga Association, for joining us again to talk about the incredible snowshoe priest, Venerable Bishop Frederick Berga. Thanks so much, Len. Thank you. God bless. And that was Lenore McKean, the Executive Director of the Bishop Berga Association. Check them out at bishopberga.org to learn about the life of this incredible priest and bishop. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be trying to answer the question of the week. Why do so many of the Marian icons of Eastern Europe all have the same silvery dress? Stay with us for that. Now, back to The Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to The Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. I love getting your questions. People write in from around the world with questions about miracles happening in today's world and those that have happened centuries ago. And uh, I try my best to keep up Keep up with all the questions that come in. And sometimes we answer them on the radio show. Sometimes I'll just write you back. Uh, But uh, I also like getting your questions when I give uh, presentations. So I travel around the country, perhaps giving as many as 20 talks per year, uh, where I go to different parishes, conferences, uh, events. Um, And uh, I give a talk for about 45 minutes. These days I've been talking a lot about Eucharistic miracles because it's the time of Eucharistic revival here in the United States uh, uh, from the USCCB. And so many parishes are trying to do do programming uh, related to Eucharistic miracles and the Eucharist in general. So I've been giving these talks, and at the end of the talk, I often open it up to questions. And uh, people have a lot of questions about miracles, and I do my best to answer them. Well, we had a unique question coming in this week, uh, one that we hadn't gotten before. The question is, Dear Miracle Hunter, Why do many of the Marian icons of Eastern Europe, Czestochowa, Geertswald, or Lady Gate of Dawn from Vilnius, all have the same silvery dress? Thank you, Alex. Well, thanks, Alex, for your question. And it's a good one. I think that uh, it's true. If you look at a lot of the photographs of the icons from around the world, you can see that uh, many of the icons have this very very silvery dress, uh, especially in Eastern Europe. You don't see it here. In the United States. And it turns out that uh, many of these icons are simply paintings uh, that were uh, created or written, as you might say, um, at some time or found and then uh, promoted as the icon related to a Marian apparition or other Marian devotion. And the people there uh, at the church, the local church that's been built or the archdiocese or the nation, have gifted that icon with various uh, ways of honoring it. And so uh, in this particular case, uh, we see Chestahova, uh, as was mentioned, Geertswald in Poland, Our Lady Gate of Dawn in Lithuania. We see that they have this, this silvery dress. And uh, what the idea is, is that as part of the gifting to this icon, uh, there, these, uh, these dresses or adornments are created that are placed on top of the icon and in the case of our lady of chestahova if you go to the museum room as uh, as i did on uh, pilgrimage uh, earlier this past year uh, you can see all the various uh, dresses and adornments and gifts of and crowns and things of this nature and uh, each and every one of these icons has what it seems to be a a uh, dress made out of pure silver, uh, that's a, a decorative and an honorific type of, uh, type of thing where they use this to, to venerate Mary and show her uh, great honor by giving her uh, a dress made of a precious metal. And uh, most commonly we see these dresses made of silver. So it's not the exact same dress that makes the rounds to all the icons. It's just a very common uh, practice uh, that the local people, uh, will, out of love for Mary, will give her a dress. Uh, that's placed uh, not permanently uh, and oftentimes is uh, changed out for different uh, dresses and adornments that are put on top of that icon to show honor to Mary. So thanks, Alex, for your question. And if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, send me an email to questions at miraclehunter.com and I'll do my best to answer your question on the year next week. Let's take a look at the 365 Days with Mary project. We do this every week where we look at the Marian devotion of the day as it lines up exactly uh, to the day's date. You all know Fatima on May 13th or February 11th, Lourdes, or Guadalupe December 12th, but believe it or not, there's a different Marian icon from somewhere in the world that relates uh, to every day of the calendar year. And we're talking about uh, commemorations of Marian apparitions or feast days or building basilicas or some other way that Mary is honored every day throughout the year, and so for today, January twentieth, we have Our Lady of the Miracle from Rome in Italy, in the year eighteen forty-two. And the story goes that Marie Alphonse Radisbon, an anti-Catholic Jew, befriended a baron during his travels in Rome, and began wearing the miraculous medal as a simple challenge. On January twentieth, eighteen forty-two, while waiting for the baron in the church San Andrea de la Frate. Brettisbon encountered a vision of Our Lady and soon after converted to Catholicism, later becoming a priest and establishing a religious community devoted to the conversion of the Jews. The following month, the Vatican held a canonical investigation concluding, that after many depositions, that his conversion was a miracle through the intercession of the Virgin. And that is Our Lady of the Miracle from Rome in Italy in 1842. For more information on this fascinating devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions from around the world. You can connect to 365dayswithmary.com, pick up the book, or join the Facebook page, where we have as many as 10,000 followers getting a daily uh, update on the uh, Marian devotion of the day. Now let's take a look at the miracle of the day. This is a new segment we've been doing now in 2024, where we look at miracles happening around the world, and we try to line them up to those occurring on the day's date. So, for today's date, we have January 20th, and the year is 1944, which was the date set for the execution of a certain prisoner in Mississippi. Now, the story goes that in January 1943, uh, a man named Cloud Newman, he was apprehended in Arizona and returned to Vicksburg, Mississippi. is later said he made a coerced confession on January 13th. And Despite the protests of his lawyer, this confession was admitted as evidence and he was found guilty by the jury. And he was sentenced to die in the electric chair on May 14th, 1943. And an appeal to retry the case was rejected by the state attorney general. And uh, the date of January 20th, 1944 was given as the date for the execution. And sometimes later later in that year, a cloud uh, began to put on a miraculous medal and afterwards began having visions of the Virgin Mary. And she encouraged him to find a priest and become a Catholic. And Father Robert O'Leary uh, was uh, the one who came to minister him. And Father O'Leary ended up bla- baptizing Claude in jail with the name Claude Jude, uh, with Sister Henken standing by as his sponsor. And just before Claude was to be executed on January 20th, a stay of execution of two weeks arrived And he was finally later put to death on February 4th, 1944. And one of the fascinating things is that uh, right before his death, Claude had a big party. And he had his favorite dessert, coconut pie, in the night before he died. And um, one of the things that that happened is that during this time of the Miraculous Medal, of wearing the Miraculous Medal, and having his conversion... He actually uh, gave miraculous medals to other prisoners and led to their conversion uh, to Catholicism. So Claude uh, ended up being executed, um, but we see the uh, great influence of him in life and after his death of the conversion of many who uh, who saw the great change in him. And so that is the miracle of the day from January 20th, 1944. Of course, this is not something that's ever been investigated and approved by the church, but this is something that's come down to us uh, through the histories where we talk about Cloud Newman and his visions of the Virgin Mary and his uh, love for the miraculous medal in the final days of his life. And so each and every day, the miracle of the day will present a different story of uh, a miracle happening on that day at some time in history. (laughs) Let's take a look at the sainthood news. We do this every week where we talk about they might be saints. And this relates to my television series, They Might Be Saints, which airs on EWTN on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And that series looks at Americans on the path to sainthood. And we're talking about servants of God, venerable, uh, blessed, before they have all their miracles and are declared a saint by Rome. And what I always like to do is I always like to uh, keep you up to date on the sainthood news, people who are coming down the pipeline, you might say. And so last month, during an audience granted to uh, his most Reverend eminence, Cardinal Marcello Semeraro, the prefect for the dicastery for the causes of saints, the pope authorized the same dicastery to promulgate a decree regarding the heroic virtues of the servant of God, Ernesto Guglielmo Cofino Ubico, a faithful layman and father born on June 5th, 1899 in Ciudad de Guatemala, in Guatemala, and died there on October 17th, 1991. And on the Dicastery for the Causes of Saints website, they say that he was a faithful layman and family man, and his deep faith and hum- humanity pushed him to support various initiatives of fa- in favor of street children and orphans. And he founded kindergartens and welfare centers, The belief in achieving eternal happiness was the driving force of his life and also tried to convey this hope to others. And again, that is now venerable Ernesto Guglielmo Cofiño Ubico from Guatemala. And with one miracle, he will be declared blessed. A second miracle will lead him to be named a saint. Now let's take a look at the might be saint of the day. We do this every week as well, where we talk about someone on the path to sainthood whose feast day or death anniversary lines up exactly to the day's date. So for today we have blessed Ursula Heider, who lived from 1413 to 1498 in Germany. And she was born in 1498 14- 13, in uh, modern, which is now more modern Württemberg, Germany, and she was orphaned soon after her birth, and Ursula was raised by her maternal grandmother and her uncle, Father Johann Bohr. In, at the age of nine in 1422, she moved to the Franciscan Monastery of Ruth at Bad Walsy in modern Germany to attend their school. She made her first communion there and became the spiritual student of Blessed Elizabeth Achler. Her life at Rute led her to be drawn to the religious life and she returned home at age 17 and she received and turned down a series of marriage proposals and spent her time searching for the proper monastery to enter religious life. On July ninth, 1431, she entered the Poor Clare convent of Valduna in Austria and she cared for the sick, especially cancer patients, and she was chosen abbess at Valduna in 1449. Later she heard a voice that prophesied that she would die in Villingen, a place she'd never heard of before. On January 25, 1480, she received an order from Pope Pius VI to go to the Black Forest village of Villingen to take over and reform the Poor Clare monastery there. On April 18, 1480, she and seven of her Franciscan sisters set out for the new town and on April 29th they took over the monastery of St. Clara. The new house was set up under the strictest form of Pluric. Poor Claire discipline, the house flourished and attracted many young pious women, received large endowments, and developed a reputation for its piety, choral prayer, quality needlework, herbal medicines, and baked goods. And during a huge storm, uh, while she prayed the psalms and willingness to give herself in the place of the townspeople, led to a vision of the Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus, placing the town of Villingen under the protection of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which saved it from the storm and this explains why the town has never been overrun in the wars that have been plagued in the region for centuries. The Psalms were prayed at the cloister every Lent as a commemoration of this blessing. In 1489, ill health forced Mother Ursula to resign the abbacy, and she spent her final years as a prayerful sister, often in and out of the hospital, and uh, she kept a written record of her whole life, visions, and insights into the faith. But it has been lost. She died on January 20th, 1498, in Villingen, in Germany, of natural causes. With one more miracle, Blessed Ursula Heider from Germany will be named Saint Ursula. And she is the might-be saint of the day. And for people who like uh, this idea of saints on the path to sainthood and figuring out who's next and uh, we like especially to look at the American causes for saints, you can check out my television series, They Might Be Saints, which airs every week on Wednesdays on EWTN at 9 a.m. Eastern time on uh, January 24th. There's an episode on venerable mother Maria Kalpas in her case for sainthood uh, is the, as the founder of the sisters of St. Kesmer, her inspirational work in education and healthcare led many to seek her intercession before God on their behalf and that will air on January 24th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Check that one out. She's also featured in the book, They Might Be Saints, which can be found at EWTNRC.com, and for more information on that. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle about Our Lady of the Miracle and the incredible conversion of Alphonse Ratisbon. Stay with us for that.
1: Now, back to
0: The Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to The Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. We talk about Marian apparitions a lot on this program, and perhaps we have our our big three of uh, Lourdes, Fatima, and Guadalupe the ones uh, with the highest church recognition and uh, recognition by the faithful, of course. These are the ones that people from all around the world recognize. But maybe in fourth place, if there is such a thing as uh, the places are, are ranking the Marian apparitions, perhaps it is uh, Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal uh, that happened in, uh, uh, in Rue de in France uh, uh, to, uh, to a, a, a daughter of charity uh, who had an incredible vision of Mary and uh, was given the task of uh, uh, pushing forward the miraculous medal. And St. Catherine Labre lived her whole life in secrecy uh, going forward, but the medal has lived on. And uh, it's the most widely uh, ex- uh, distributed medal in, uh, in the entire Catholic world, perhaps with as many as one billion medals being distributed uh, since those early days. And we're so excited today, on January 20th, to talk about the commemoration of a big miracle that happened uh, on January 20th, 1842, the conversion of Alphonse Ratisbon, which is uh, perhaps, in my book, uh, the greatest conversion story uh, since St. Paul. But we're excited to talk about the Miraculous Medal uh, first, and we'll be talking with uh, Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. You're familiar with her on EWTN and uh, all her various books uh, that she's written uh, throughout the years uh, of, on Catholic topic, topics and otherwise. And we're so excited to welcome her back to the show. Welcome back, Donna Marie. Thank you so
1: much, Michael. It's great to be back with you.
0: Thank you. I hope you're staying warm there on the East Coast. <laughs> I know in Chicago, I'm not. but Oh, uh, I know.
1: It's so cold. It's so It's even cold in the house, so I've been uh, making lots of fires and trying not to go out except for mass or, you know, if I absolutely have to go out.
0: And I think that uh, it's it's a good time of year to talk about some of these these great miracle stories, and one of them relates to the Miraculous Medal, which uh, for a lot of people, myself included, uh, might wear a Miraculous Medal because it brings them closer to Mary and keeps... uh, keeps their faith in their mind to have uh, the Miraculous Medal with them. And there have been many stories of miracles related to that. Talk a little bit about uh, St. Catherine Laboure and the experience she had uh, that led to the, this, uh, the design of the Miraculous Medal and this distribution throughout the world.
1: Yes, thank you so much for asking. Well, here she was, this simple country girl, you know, with very little education. God often calls the lowly or the uneducated or, you know, the simple but the faithful and prayerful. She was a very pr- prayerful, faithful young woman, and as you said, in the Daughters of Charity. And right right when she started as a novice, early on, things started to happen <laughs> with her, and she kept it secret, as you said, for, for all those years until her death. So uh, in uh, 1830, July 18th, was when the first visit from Our Lady happened with her, and her guardian angel actually escorted her to the chapel, and there she would see our our blessed Mother, the first visit, and during that visit, Mary told her um, that God wished to charge her with a special mission, and she told her much more. She revealed prophecies, um, but she said very importantly that um, you know she shared like a secret to heavenly help. She said, "Come to go to the altar; their great graces will be shed upon all." I uh, actually she said, "Their graces will be shed upon all, great and little." who ask for them. Graces will be especially shed upon those who ask for them. And this is important, Michael, because many times people forget to ask for the graces. And if we had like an hour to talk, I could say so much more about the graces and how Mary asks us to, to ask her for them. And, and a lot of graces aren't asked for. So anyway, that visit happened, and it was just so amazing for Catherine um, to have this happen to her and then another visit would happen, November twenty seventh, 1830, and that was when Mary actually revealed the design of the miraculous medal to Catherine. And the words on the medal, um, that it's a prayer, O oh Mary, conceive without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. And it's a beautiful prayer on the medal, and we can say this many times a day, and it's connecting us with Mary, and it's praying, you know, praying to her and asking for help for us and for others, you know. And so the medals were, um, it was a big task. <laughs> it took a while, but medals were, were created because of um, Mary showing Catherine during that second visit the, the front and the back of the medal. And there's so much we could say about that, but I don't think we have time, the different, what everything represents. But it's very beautiful, and I have the details in my book. And um, so that was then in 1830. And then the medals actually came out in 1832. And, um, you know, it really wasn't originally going to be called the Miraculous Medal, it would be the medal, the medal of the Immaculate Conception, but as soon as people started handing these medals out, they would say, here, take this, it's miraculous. Here, take this, it's miraculous. And the thing is, people were cured of so many things, um, physical, um, emotional, spiritual, um, many uh, favors would occur, you know, thousands upon thousands, this would just continue to happen. It spread like wild. You know, people wanted something tangible like this, and actually a tangible prayer, a prayer that they could wear, you know. And it's a sacramental once it's blessed. So hundreds of millions of medals were distributed within that first 40 years. The Archbishop was very involved. Catherine's director, who was very skeptical at first, uh, actually wrote a book, 90 pages, on the miraculous medal. It spread around the world. So much happened, an association, Arch Confraternity, uh, the chapel at Ruta Bach would eventually become a pilgrimage site. So there's so much we could say, but then we lead up to um, this incredible miracle that brought um, the attention of the Miraculous Medal to the secular world.
0: To yeah, let's the- talk about that a little bit. We're talking today with Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle author of the book, The Miraculous Medal, Stories, Prayers, and Devotions. She gave us a great backstory about uh, The Miraculous Medal and you can check out her book and find out more in great detail. There's, There's so much to know and learn. About the miraculous medal, but uh, as you mentioned, uh, this miracle kind of stands out amongst all the many miracles uh, attributed to the miraculous medal—that of the conversion of uh, the atheistic Jew Alphonse Ratisbon. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, a little background on on Alphonse, and and why this conversion was uh, so remarkable that he would go from his his previous state.
1: Yeah, and and I like how you said it was. You think it's the greatest miracle since Saint Paul? Yeah. Well, in 1841. Um, you know, this is what this amazing thing happened that brought the attention uh, of the Miraculous Medal, like I said, to the, to the world. He was a 28-year-old man. He was a very wealthy Jewish man. He hated Catholicism. Uh, his older brother left Judea- Judaism to become a Catholic priest, and that might have had something to do with it. Um, but he, there was a mix-up. On a trip he was to take, he ended up in Rome. Um, he didn't really want to be there, but then he bumped into a friend. The friend introduced him to his brother brother was a new convert, and you know what happens with new converts, a lot of times they're very zealous, right? So he was trying to help Alphonse, you know, praying to convert him. Long story short, and I have all the details in my book, um, but long story short, uh, he kind of dared him or challenged him, you know, to wear the miraculous medal, and it was kind of crazy to think that this man who hated Catholicism would actually put the medal on, but he did. He put the medal on, um, because it was kind of a dare, and even the, the the man who was asking him to do this, his daughter actually put the medal around Alphonse's neck, so he kind of went along with it. And the other part of it was that he should pray the Memorare Prayer, the Memorare Prayer, beautiful prayer to Our Lady. And, um, well, anyway, a, a series of things happened. Um, he had this dream about a cross without a corpus. Somehow it was disturbing to him. There's just so much to it. This other man who started praying for Alphonsus for a conversion when he heard about uh, that his friend had given him the medal. Long, Another long story short, you know, this beautiful uh, thing happened in a church. He, he would never step foot in a church, but there was a reason for it. And he saw this dog trying to block his way, you know, kind of an evil thing happened. The dog disappeared, and then all of a sudden... The Blessed Mother appeared to him in the image of the miraculous metal, the exact image of the miraculous metal. And he fell to his knees, and Our Lady spoke to him in silence, like spoke to his heart so profoundly. And it was just such an amazing miracle. Um, and it got around. Uh, he immediately wanted to be, to uh, take lessons, to, he wanted to be baptized immediately after that happened. And he was, he received the. Three sacraments of initiation. Um, this news got around the world. It was because he was well known, um, and then the Archbishop of Paris uh, got involved, and they actually did a um, an official inquiry about this conversion. And so then it was um, the Church rendered her decision, and this is a quote. It's in my book that it fully recognized the signal miracle wrought by God through the intercession of the blessed virgin mary in the spontaneous and complete conversion of marie alphonse Radisson from judaism to catholicism and you know alphonse wanted to speak to saint catherine labare you know he was so so profoundly touched by this miracle and and this conversion but he even pope gregory the 16th wasn't able to speak with Mr. Labore, because she expressed, um, you know, he expressed interest in, in, in this whole matter, of course, but she wanted to be completely, she was so humble. She wanted to be, um, you know, just so anonymous, and it wasn't until her death that it came out who, she, you know, who actually received the, the Miraculous Medal um, instructions and all of that. So that's kind of in a nutshell about how this happened, but it was quite profound, and it's been... Um, Made its way around the world and, of course, through the church. And so it was a, a real amazing signal miracle of the miraculous metal.
0: Absolutely. And today, being January 20th, is a great day to commemorate this miracle happening on January 20th, 1842, the incredible conversion of Alphonse Ratisbon. And we did a program on EWTN, uh, the Explorer, uh, in part of the Explorer series where we uh, depict the, uh, the, this uh, conversion experience of Alphonse. And it was one of my favorite episodes that we did. You know, people can go to EWTNRC.com uh, to watch our depiction of Alphonse having this uh, amazing conversion from an atheistic Jew uh, going on later uh, becoming a priest and uh, working yeah. towards the conversion of the Jews. It was uh, such a, a remarkable turnaround. Yeah. We've been talking today with Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle about Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal and Our Lady of the Miracle, as she's known in Rome, uh, as it relates to Alphonse Ratisbon, And, uh, of course, we uh, we encourage people to check out your book, The Miraculous Medal, Stories, Prayers, and Devotions. Uh, people can go to DonnaCooperOboyle.com for more information on that. And I know with the Eucharistic Revival upon us from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, you've also done a, a, a num- uh, some work uh, leading towards that. Tell us a little bit about uh, your retreats and and your books that, uh, that line up perfectly with the Eucharistic Revival.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. Yes, I've been doing lots of retreats this past year. Last year, it seems like um, every weekend for a couple of months in a row, I was here and there and everywhere, because people are thirsty, you know, and we need to um, give them encouragement in Church teaching and on the Eucharist. You know, a um, few research uh, revealed that just, you know, 31% of Catholics believe in the True Presence, so we need to do everything we can to help with that. Um, that low statistic, and our, thank God our bishops have you know, started this Eucharistic Revival, so I've been going around doing that. I wrote a book for EWTN Publishing, 30 Eucharistic Visits, th- excuse me, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits, Adoring Jesus with His Mother. So I bring Mary into these visits, and that's another whole story in itself, but so I have that book um, out now, and people are enjoying that, and, and and um, appreciating the help, you know, kind of guided prayer help for their for their um, visits during adoration. So I've been very busy with that, and I have retreats coming up, and and I feel just so humbled and blessed to you know have this role of being able to share, you know, from from our Lord, from our Lady, from the saints, you know, church teaching, and just laying it all out there to try to help encourage others to uh, to really seek that encounter with Jesus and the blessings.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to you for your great work uh, in all of this and uh, for your book, uh, The Miraculous Medal, Stories, Prayers, and Devotions. I encourage people to check that book out to find out more about uh, The Miraculous Medal and some of these amazing miracle stories, including Alphonse Radisbon, who we celebrate today on January 20th. And uh, people can go to the website, donnacooperoboyle.com Donna for more information on this, and to find out about that book. Thanks so much, Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, for being with us on today's program.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. The Miracle Hunter, keep, keep hunting down those miracles. I, I love hearing about them.
0: Thank you so much. I'll keep hunting. God bless. And that was Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle uh, joining us today to talk about the Miraculous Medal and that amazing, uh, miraculous conversion of Alphonse Rattisbonne. And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of this episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can go to EWTN.com radio, check out the audio archive, or download the free EWTN app. I'd like to thank our guest today, Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, talking to us about Our Lady of the Miracle, the Miraculous Medal, and Alphonse Ratisbon, and Lenora McKean, the Executive Director of the Bishop Berga Association, talking to us about the Snowshoe Priest check out my show, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. This week, I go to Pontmain. I travel to Pontmain in France where the Virgin Mary under the title of Our Lady of Hope appeared to farm children and to an army which precipitated the end of the Franco-Prussian War. And I'd like to thank you today for joining me on Miracle Hunter. where, from claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events. Whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. Talk to you next week.